Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College. My name is John Schuck. I'm a minister. I uh, do my thing at the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find the website uh, for that congregation at www.fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is uh, on www.religionforlife.me. Well, I love my car. In fact, I've had a love affair with the car since I first was able to drive. My first car was a 1962 Buick Invicta. The United States has a love affair with the automobile, and we have a setup of highways and suburban life that is built all around the automobile. And now we're facing our limits in terms of what powers this way of life. Oil. We consume about 20 million barrels of oil a day, and two-thirds of that oil we import from foreign countries. We're in a bit of a pickle, and we're not really sure what to do about it. My guest is James Howard Kunstler. He's the author, social critic, public speaker, and blogger. Every Monday he produces a column for his blog, Kunstler.com, K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R.com. He was formerly a reporter and staff writer for The Rolling Stone. He's the author of numerous novels and nonfiction works, including works around the topic of suburban sprawl, peak oil, the economy, and the future of industrial civilization as it reaches its limits. Some of his books include The Geography of Nowhere, The Rise and Decline of America's Man-Made Landscape, The Long Emergency, Surviving the Converging Catastrophes of the 21st Century. In 2005, he wrote that book. Two fiction novels set in the near future along these themes, World Made by Hand and The Witch of Hebron, and his latest book published in July of 2012, Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. He's speaking with me by Skype from his home in upstate New York. Welcome, Mr. Kunstler, to Religion for Life. A pleasure to be here, John. I first saw you featured in the documentary, The End of Suburbia, and, and then from there, I, I started reading about peak oil, including Richard Heinberg's The Party's Over, your book, The Long Emergency, and many others, and I, I've blogged about it myself and discovered that few people want to address this. They either mock those who talk about peak oil or, or jump to a magical solution. In fact, I hear things like, we have plenty of oil. With new technology, North Dakota is the new Saudi Arabia. It, it has to be frustrating for you to write about this and not be taken seriously in some respects by some quarters. Uh, is that frustration part of the reason for this book? Well, it, really more my observations about how we're behaving in this country. And you're right. Uh, the delusional thinking is just uh, incredibly strong out there. Even today, Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, uh, wrote uh, his uh, Monday column saying that uh, the whole shale gas, shale oil equation was a, quote, game changer. You know, this is just not true. He just doesn't get it. But there is a tremendous wish out there that we can keep all of our stuff going. You know, we, we, we've invested all of our tremendous wealth from the 20th century uh, in a certain infrastructure for daily life that we can't imagine letting go of or changing very much. So we're doing everything possible to persuade ourselves that we can sustain the unsustainable. Let's just get some basics to get everyone on the, on the same page here. What is peak oil? Have we reached it? And, and what are the implications? 
Peak oil is the idea that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the oil story uh, and, and to the supply, that there's a finite supply of it on the planet Earth. Uh, the Earth is not a bonbon with a creamy nougat center of oil. Uh, oil is found in special places uh, and was formed uh, under special conditions. And uh, we are running out of the places that where it was easy to drill for oil, for oil and cheap to drill for oil and where uh, places that were ge geographically favorable places to work in. And increasingly, the oil that's available for us is the expensive, hard-to-get oil that, um, uh, that uh, implies certain hazards in, in getting it out. And uh, I think we're going to be shocked to see how the whole shale gas and shale oil story works out. And some have suggested uh, that we actually peaked in the amount of the production of conventional oil in 2005 or 2006. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, by conventional oil, we mean, you know, the oil that you basically stick a pipe in the ground and the oil flows out. Uh, the unconventional oil includes tar sands, shale oils, uh, um, deep, deep water uh, oil, um, and uh, uh, natural gas liquids, you know, things that are everything but the oil that you stick a pipe in the ground and it gushes out. And the problem with that stuff is that it's very expensive to get out and difficult, and it, you find it in places that are hard to work in. And one of the other problems that has happened uh, uh, at the same time, you know, it was a developing story in 2005, when I wrote The Long Emergency, but it has evolved since then, is the, you know, the banking fiasco. Mm -hmm. The banking fiasco really boils down to some simple things. Uh, mainly that the impairments in the banking system are going to lead to uh, terrible trouble with capital formation, which means we're not going to have the money to invest in the non-conventional oil operations uh, that are very costly that we have to perform to get this unconventional oil out. So many of the wishes and hopes uh, that are now vested in this as a game changer are going to be disappointed because the capital won't be there to, to make it work. And peak oil isn't the only peak. Uh, what are some of the other limits that we're hitting? Well, there's a kind of general peak material resource problem. Uh, the, the ores that, that are available to us now for, you know, the metals that we use uh, are increasingly very low quality. So that it's getting to the point where uh, in, some in some cases it's barely uh, um, worth mining the ore and then processing it to get the metal. Uh, but we also face problems with peak water, peak soil. You know, all, really all of the resources that we depend on, peak phosphorus that we need as a fertilizer for, for agriculture. So we're facing a whole range of uh, peak problems with the things we need to make uh, regular advanced nations and economies work. And uh, the implication of all that is that we have to make other arrangements for everyday life rather than putting all of our mental effort and, our, and investing all of our spiritual effort in uh, wishing for Santa Claus to deliver technological rescue remedies to make it possible to keep on living the way we do, 
we really need to take practical steps to uh, make changes in how we live and to do it in such a way that will allow us to continue being civilized. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. My guest is James Howard Kunstler, author of the new book, Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. Uh, Mr. Kunstler, there's a phrase associated with you called happy motoring or happily motoring. And this is the whole mythos, as, as I am understanding it, ideology, identity, way of life, love affair with the automobile. Um, part of the magical thinking is that we must save the car at all costs. It's almost like a religion, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's a very good index of how delusional we are. In fact, uh, that kind of thinking is found in the, in the most uh, surprising places. Uh, for three years uh, running, I went to the Aspen Environment Forum, which is a gathering of the cream of the environmental movement in America. And, um, you know, it was, it was amazing to see that whenever the issue of peak oil came up or the issue of car dependency came up. The only thing that these guys wanted to talk about was all the groovy new ways that you could run a car by other means. And so there, you know, even even that group of people is having a basically stupid conversation about uh, how we're going to address these problems. They never wanted to talk about walkable communities or, or public transit or reviving the railroad system in America. And I maintain that if, if we don't talk about those things, we're really going to be lost. You mentioned in your book uh, that uh, President Obama missed an opportunity with the stimulus money. Uh, rather than funding um, highway projects, it might have been better to fund or re reestablish our railroad system. There's absolutely no question that we're going to have to rebuild the conventional railroad system. And by the way, uh, because of the impairments of banking and, and capital shortages, we don't have the money to do high-speed rail. We missed, we, we missed the window of opportunity on that, and uh, that's just now part of the package of wishful thinking that we have to just drop. But um, we do need to fix a conventional railroad system, which is lying out there rusting in the rain, and it would put lots of people, scores of thousands of people, to work at all kinds of different job levels, and it would uh, benefit people of, of all classes, and it, it's a project that we could do that would help bolster our confidence as a people that we could greet these problems of the future with, with some competence. And the fact that we're not even talking about this shows how unserious we are as a nation. How unserious we are. I wonder if people may think high-speed rail might be sexy and regular old railroad isn't. Is, is that part of the delusion? Oh, sure. It's, you know, it, it's because high-speed rail is the, uh, you know, the new state of the art. And after all, it is a fact that other nations have done it. It's just also a fact that they did it during a period of time when there was a lot of money in the world to do that kind of thing. We are now facing a compressive contraction of money as we enter this peculiar uh, deflationary uh, period of history, Con this, this period of, of uh, long-term contraction. Uh, and um, we're just not going to have the money to do high-speed rail. So, uh, look, it, uh, I'm convinced that uh, Americans would be delighted to be able to get on a train and go from Richmond, Virginia to Chicago at 90 miles an hour if they could leave on time and get there on time and leave, with, leave from stations and arrive at stations that had some dignity. Mm -hmm. But, uh, 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 you know, that, that was the state of the art in 1925, and, and we're, we're not even, you know, halfway there yet. We're, we're not even up to the ankles of that level of service. Our service is more like the Bulgarian National Railroad. 
<laughs> My guest is James Howard Kunstler, author of Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. Uh, you've written quite a bit about uh, our suburban lifestyle, and you wrote that suburbia is the largest misallocation of resources in the history of humankind. C- can you explain that? Yeah, you know, we were the richest nation in the world, and we poured all of our wealth into the construction of this living arrangement with no future. Now, I must add, it wasn't a conspiracy that we did it. We did it for the same reason that a lot of things happen in history, namely because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, we were a big continental nation with a, not a very large population, let's say, in the early 20th century. Uh, we had a lot of land, we had a lot of open land, we had a lot of our own oil, and we had this new machine that we were perfecting called the automobile. So, you know, you put all those things together and it seems like a good idea to do suburbia. Um, one of the reasons we did it was because our cities weren't particularly very nice. Um, most of them didn't have a very long history. Uh, most of them really were, were uh, grew up with the industrial process and uh, were kind of manifestations of industrialism and, you know, were full of factories and unpleasant noises and smells and, and uh, you know, the, P, uh, Americans kind of rejected the idea that city life had any value by the early 20th century. And so the whole idea was to escape to it and have everybody live in the country. And that that was what suburbia was originally intended to be. And in a way, it's an understandable response to the industrial city and to the predicaments of that time. However, it evolved in a peculiar way as, as, as things in human history often do evolve. And it, 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 it didn't turn out to be country living for everybody. It turned out to be a cartoon of country life and a cartoon of a country house and a cartoon of the country. And that's what most people are living in now in America. And, uh, you know, the problem with it is that it didn't really deliver what it, what it promised, and it ended up being not terribly satisfying. But be that as it may, you know, one can criticize suburbia on many uh, terms, uh, including... Uh, uh, issues that that lie outside the question of energy and, and whether or not we can run run the darn thing. But um, I, I think the fact is now that um, it's uh, it's past its sell by date. Um, it's obsolete, and it's going to be increasingly a liability for us. And uh, we're probably going to have to move away from it. Now, the process is not going to be very uh, very smooth and easy, and it represents a tremendous set of investments that people are going to be very reluctant to let go of. But, you know, uh, uh, we're probably going to be dragged kicking and screaming away from it, and that's, that's probably the sad reality of the situation, but, but that will happen. Yeah, it's hard to think we've got all these houses and it's hard to move them, and, and all, of, uh, all of the roads and everything that connects. It's a whole lifestyle thing that now we keep uh, funding just to keep it going. But you also talk about uh, your name is associated with a movement called New Urbanism. Uh, can you explain that? Well, around the late 1980s, a group of young architects and urban designers uh, and developers got together, and they perceived that the suburban development pattern was a problem and that it was actually very unsatisfying for people. And they wanted to revive the traditional town planning uh, uh, idea and, and the, um, the principles and uh, methodologies that went into it. So they dove into the dumpster of history, and they relearned how to do uh, 
traditional urban design and how to uh, assemble places that were really worth caring about and worth living in. And they built uh, quite a few demonstration projects, but they also had they also had a hand in the revival of many downtowns around the country. And uh, uh, it's a great movement, and they really uh, um, uh, retrieved a lot of important information that we're going to need because we're going to have to return to those traditional ways of inhabiting the landscape. And there's something actually desirable, I would think, about New Urban and being able to walk and shop in the same uh, area without having to drive everywhere. Look, um, John, anybody who has made a trip to Europe over the last 40 years and walked around the towns and cities there knows how satisfying and, and spiritually rewarding and gratifying it is to be in that kind of environment, you know, an environment that really gives something back to you, that really informs you that, uh, that you are a human being and that, that human life and human civilization is worth caring about. But that is not the feeling that you get from being in a parking lot of a strip mall in America. And it's sort of self-evident, but, but there are so few places in America that, that are any good, really, that uh, most most Americans just kind of uh, don't pay much attention to it, and they you know they go with the flow of what what they got. I think it does make them happy. I don't think it's an accident that we're you know perhaps the most depressed nation on the uh, you know among all of the advanced nations. But uh, hmm. uh, you know we we can do better, and we're going to do better because uh, we're going to have to live differently, whether we like it or not. James Howard Kunstler is my guest on Religion for Life. He blogs at uh, kunstler.com, K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R.com. He's written a new book called Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. How, what, a, what do you make of the new transition town movement? Well, it's a, an understandable response to uh, a, a nation which is actually getting very poor leadership for what will actually be a, trans- a transition and probably a painful and difficult transition. And these are people who are locally trying to fill the vacuum uh, of, of the uh, the failures of leadership at the national and state level to to do anything to uh, you know uh, prepare us uh, to live differently. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Our political leaders, uh, Jimmy Carter, was as close to any, I think, about telling us the truth about our energy situation, and his prize for that is that he didn't win re-election. Do you think our current president knows about peak oil and the other limits we're facing? Do you think, or do you think he's really committed to uh, happy motoring? Um, that's a very good question and, and hard to answer. It's hard to believe that he doesn't know about peak oil and all the problems associated with. My, you know, after all, his energy secretary is a, you know, a, a, a PhD physicist from the Lawrence Livermore lab. He could not be ignorant, uh, you know, Dr. Stephen Chu. He mm-hmm. could not be so ignorant as to not know this stuff. I think that the situation is as follows: our economy is under such a dreadful strain, and the financial system is so impaired that the president doesn't do dare to do anything to rock the boat, including telling people the truth. Now, that's very un- unfortunate because when all is said and done, you know, uh, uh, reality has a very close friendship with the truth. Mm-hmm. They're best friends. And when, and when, when their friendship uh, gets into trouble, uh, you end up with uh, a society and an economy that will be very troubled. So, you know, it's kind of a tragic thing because um, 
life is tragic in the sense that uh, societies uh, make bad decisions and uh, they have to pay the consequences for making bad decisions. And one of the bad decisions that we're making now uh, is ignoring the need to prepare for an epical transition from one way of life to another. So, uh, you know, history doesn't care. History won't shed a tear for us um, if we don't make the right decisions. It's really up to us. And again, it's part of that ideology or mythology of constant growth that we can't conceive of human beings actually uh, contracting. Well, of, of economies contracting. That's and what I, I mean. The, yeah. the, the political mission, the political task for the next decade and perhaps beyond that is the task of managing contraction. It is extremely difficult. It has terrible implications for the whole money system. Uh, and the whole banking system, and uh, uh, we simply don't want to face it. James Howard Kunstler is my guest, author of Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. Your two novels on these themes, World by Hand and The Witch of Hebron, are incredibly well-written, by the way. Uh, You don't spell it out in the novels, uh, but the setting appears to be about 20 years from now, and, and of course, in your your area, uh, upstate New York. uh, in In the novels, there's no federal government, no local government, no electricity. It's a dystopian future, and yet, as I read them, in the midst of all of that, the novels are rather hopeful. I, I read in them the resilience of the human spirit. And, and even though these novels are fiction, uh, do you think um, they represent a possible, perhaps even probable future? I certainly wrote them the way I wrote them because I thought that that is the way that things will shake out. And uh, I did have um, uh, a sort of a, a, another agenda in writing them, which was to present uh, an American future in which people had had many compensations for the losses that they would have incurred. Uh, These are people who are now living in an economy that has agriculture at its center. Mm -hmm. They don't know much about what's going on in the rest of the country or the world for that matter. Um, uh, Communications are poor. But these are people who are now living in much more direct connection with nature, Uh, nature which is recovering, by the way, from the insults of science and technology and and industry. Um, They're working with their neighbors at things that matter. They're making music with their neighbors. Uh, The joys uh, of of life are still present and, and, uh, you know, love and generosity and all the virtues of human life are still present in that world. And um, these are people who are surviving and getting by not badly. They're, they're, They're eating pretty well but they are in a very new and different world. It's also identifiably, you know, still an American culture. Um, they haven't lost their, their, their Americanness. You know, they're not, they're not cyborgs from a future. However, um, you know, they, they have been faced with a lot of losses, including uh, a loss of faith in, uh, in technology and science. And, and I believe that this is going to be a big part of our future, that People will feel profoundly let down and disappointed by science and technology and the promises that it made. And I just hope that we don't enter a new dark age of superstition as a result. Right. Uh, You write in your book that you're not a religious person, and I don't want to tarnish your reputation, but I found that the conclusion to your book, uh, in my opinion, is what religion is to be about. Uh, You wrote, I certainly believe in facing the future with hope, 
but I have learned that this feeling of confidence does not come from outside you. It's not something that Santa Claus or a candidate for president is going to furnish you with. The way to become hopeful is to demonstrate to yourself that you're a competent person who can understand the signals that reality is sending to you, even from its current remove offstage, and act intelligently in response. James Howard's Kunstler, thank you for being with me. Do you have a, a final word for us? Well, I do think that the American people are uh, not only resilient and resourceful, but also essentially generous, mm-hmm. kind. And I think if, if, if there's anything that makes us exceptional in the world, it's that. You know, it, it's not our great military, uh, it's, not, it's not our, you know, giant in, inflated uh, uh, cities and economy. It, it, it's the fact that over time, we have done the right thing most of the time. James Howard Kunstler, thank you for being with me. I invite everyone to pick up his book, Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. Again, thank you for being with me on Religion for Life. A pleasure, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schock, and I'm the minister at the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find information about my congregation by going to www.fpcelizabethton.org. Information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts, can be found at religionforlife.me. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook and Twitter. Religion for Life is also on iTunes. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well. (laughs) 